Hi everyone, we are about halfway through now our The Promise Endures series and this is all about how God's faithfulness is outworked through a family that we're tracing through the Old Testament book of Genesis and we're seeing the mountaintop and the valley experiences of this family and the passage that we're looking at today certainly is one of those valley scenarios. We have encountered time and time again that the Bible often gives us an unflinchingly descriptive perspective on things that happened. And I say descriptive as opposed to prescriptive in the sense that not all of the Bible is for us to emulate and copy. Sometimes the Bible teaches us through counter example and just tells it the way it is in the terms of the way it happened in history. And so I want to give this heads up on the passage you're about to hear. We are about to hear a story of where women in particular are particularly mistreated. There is examples of polygamy and where women are treated as objects really, as as possessions and are not treated well at all. I want to remind us that this is in contrast to the way the Bible sets out God's ideals for men and for women from the very first pages of the Bible. Part of God's design of humanity is that men and women are equally created in the image of God, full of inherent value and dignity. And where there is a marriage relationship, that is to be an exclusive relationship where each part, the husband and the wife, are cherished and desired and pursued by the other. And so what we're about to hear is in real contrast to that. And you might ask, well, why is this story in the Bible then? Well, the Bible tells it like it is. We wouldn't blame the news for telling us bad news all the time. And if if the news told us just good news, we would think that's propaganda. That's not, they're not telling us the truth. No, the Bible speaks the truth. And sometimes the truth is very harsh and very dark. But it doesn't just tell us it for no reason at all, but that it shows us that the, that the Bible story is God's big story of his rescue. And it presents us the darkness of the, what the Bible calls sin in order to show how the goodness of the Saviour, Jesus Christ, actually not, it doesn't just come into the world to cheer us all up, but to undo all this darkness, all this wrong, all this sin that is in the world. And hopefully, from what I have to say today, you will see something of that bright light of the gospel shining on a dark situation like this. And we're going to hear the passage now from Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. 
pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I might go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. So what we've heard there is a very complicated family scenario. And even if you've been uh, with us for the last few weeks or through this series, you might be finding it a little bit hard to keep up with it. it I don't know if you've ever uh, read a, a book that has a sort of contents page and a list of characters. I remember uh, when I read uh, Dr. Zhivago. I mean, you know, if you read Russian literature, what's the point of doing that unless you tell people that you have read it? Uh, but in that, there was, at the beginning, it has a list of characters and it tells you who's related to who and it helps you to reference as you're reading through because it's very easy to forget. In these sort of epic family sagas, well, we've got an epic family saga right here. And maybe you've lost your way a little bit, so let me help you with that. See if you can keep up with this. This is a brief summary of what is happening and who is who in this family saga that we're looking at in Genesis. So we're talking here about Jacob. 
Now Jacob, on the urging of his mother, Rebekah, and his father Isaac, has gone to see Laban, who is Rebekah's brother, so that's Jacob's uncle, because Jacob is hated by his brother, Esau, because of the deceptive trick that he played on his father Isaac. And here Jacob meets Rachel, who's Laban's daughter, his mother's Rebekah's niece, and therefore his cousin and who he marries, but not before being tricked by Laban into marrying his other cousin, Leah. Now, Leah and Rachel, sisters, their father Laban is described as this, by Jacob as the son of Nahor. But strictly speaking, he's actually the grandson of Nahor because he and Rebekah are the children of Bethuel. However, the mention of Nahor is helpful because it reminds us that this whole family is descendant from Nahor, who's in fact Abraham's brother. And Abraham, of course, is Jacob and Esau's grandfather, Isaac's father, Rebekah's father-in-law, and the great patriarch who all this family saga is all about. Got it? Good. Because next week is going to get even more complicated because Jacob is going to have four wives here and have 13 children as a result. You need a family tree. <laughs> visually to keep track of who is who. So get one. I encourage you to do that. So you can just look it up on Google, Abraham family tree, to keep track of who is who. And I want to, seriously, I want to encourage you to do that to better understand what is happening here. If someone was to ask you, who is Nahor? Which uh, of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel who are Jacob's sons which ones come from Leah? Which ones come from Rachel? Does Judah? Does Joseph? These are important characters in the Bible and these people are important. God has put them down in the Bible for us to read, to understand and know because this family carried the promises of God in their generation. If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, these are our ancestors. Spiritually speaking, this is our family tree. You know, if I was to ask you about your favorite TV program or soap or whatever, you'd be able to tell me which characters are who and who's related to who and what happened in the past and because you're invested, because you know, because you care about. Well, the Bible invites us to care about these characters, to understand who is who. And sometimes we're a bit passive when it comes to this. We think sort of learning names of people and knowing facts about the Bible is sort of old fashioned. No, it's if we're doing it, it's showing that we care about God's story, which is our story if we are in him. I want to encourage us to be a people that is devoted to scripture and even the details of scripture in this way. And in that way, being devoted to God and taking hold of the story that we as Christians are part of. In the time we've got remaining, I want to focus on Jacob and Rachel and Leah and see things from their perspective. We have just heard 30 verses. We're hopefully stretching your stamina of how much of the Bible you can track with on a Sunday because we believe it's important. But if you're following that through, who's not mentioned? Who's not mentioned in those 30 verses? God. God is not mentioned. Now, there are different parts of the Bible where God isn't mentioned by name, and that's not maybe a big deal. But it's significant in this passage, and I'll tell you for why. 
This passage has a lot of similarities to a chapter from before, chapter 24 of Genesis, that we looked at in the first of our The Promise Endures series. It's a parallel passage because in that one, in chapter 24, we had Abraham's servant who was sent on a journey to this same family, for this same person, to this same place, and even has this scenario of meeting someone at this watering uh, of animals, just like Jacob does. And in that sense, in in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant was sent to get uh, a wife for Isaac. And now we have Isaac's son, Jacob, going to the same place for essentially the same purpose. He meets and marries his wife there. And so the Bible, the author of Genesis, is holding us up this parallel. Now, if you were with us on that, you might remember one of the things that characterized Abraham's servant was his piety, his devotion to God, his prayerfulness, his discernment, his desire to seek God's will and check in with God. Am I doing this right? God, you open the door. Jacob, by contrast, doesn't do any of that. He doesn't pray. He doesn't ask for discernment. There's no mention of God here at all. It's clear that Jacob, he's not walking by faith here. He is not walking by faith. And what has happened with Jacob is that he is basically, by deception, has blown up his own family and has to run away. And now he's plowing headlong into a new family situation and trying to create a new family. But it's, he's, he's blowing that one up as well because he's not walking in the purposes of God in the sense of being obedient to the voice of God, not doing things God ways. He's being self-reliant. And it's a small point, but it's worth making. The Bible does not ever co- uh, commend self-reliance. No, quite the opposite. (laughs) God does not help those who help themselves. God is looking for us to be dependent on him, to walk according to his wisdom, to be prayerful, to submit our ways to him. There's so many verses that speak of that. Proverbs 16 verse 3 is just one. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Psalm 119 verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The idea is that if we are not walking according to God's wisdom in our lives, if we're not seeking his input, we're not being prayerful, we're not in the word, we're not having our mind shaped by scripture, the Bible essentially says we're walking in darkness. We're walking in darkness. You ever walked in darkness? (laughs) You get up in the middle of the night. The room's dark. What'd you do? You stub your toe. You whack your shin on the corner of the bed. It's painful because you can't see where you're going. The Bible, God says that his word is a lamp to our feet. It helps us to see the danger. It helps us to see where to go. You see, walking in the ways of God actually shield us and protect us from so many dangers that we probably wouldn't aware that we're protected from because we're walking in his ways. And sometimes we only realize that when we start to walk away from God's wisdom. And many of you will know what that is like because there's been seasons of your life that you've not walked in in God's wisdom. You've been self-reliant and you've made decisions, whether it's in family life, financial 
situations with your career that you've made foolish mistakes and you've brought pain upon yourself and maybe others as well and maybe even you're living with the consequences now. God's word, his ways would have saved you from that. And it's an important point. Jacob walks in foolishness and he reaps foolishness. You might ask when you see this, well, Jacob is deceptive here and now Jacob is being deceived. And you think, oh, is, does the Bible sanction karma? <laughs> the universe will get you back. Well, not quite. It refers to it in a different way. The Bible does speak about the principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow in foolishness, you will reap <laughs> foolishness. If you reject God's wisdom, you're going to go headlong into dangers outside of his protection. Jacob is vulnerable to being exploited because he's not walking in God's ways. And what we see played out here is Jacob's sinfulness is like a snowball. (laughs) That just things get worse and worse and he gathers up other victims because of his own sinful attitudes. And we see his victims... In this passage, Rachel and Leah in particular are the recipients of this, forced into this marriage situation that is to all of their detriment and not the way things should be done. So let's focus specifically on Rachel and then on Leah as well. We're introduced to Rachel in this passage And the first thing we're told about her is that she's a shepherdess. It says that in verse 9 there. If anyone uh, watching this is called Rachel, you will know probably that Rachel, the word Rachel means you, as in sheep, you. And so the idea is that her identity, who she is, is full of purpose and actually strength and meaning. And she is a person in in her own right. And then also... It says that she's beautiful. And then the Bible also tells us that Jacob loved her. So all that kind of sounds fine. But as the passage goes on, soon we see that Jacob's desire for her actually overwhelms everything else. And she goes from someone as being strong and empowered as a shepherdess to, well, she has no agency. She has no decision-making capacity in what follows in terms of this marriage and you might think oh well that's what the bible is like but again if we contrast this passage to the very similar passage back in genesis 24 we have rebecca who is asked whether she wants to go and marry isaac she is empowered she is given opportunity to say what she wants to do And given that opportunity, she actually agrees and it turns into that's a sort of heroic act of faith. She wants to be associated with this family who seem to be carrying this promises of God with them and so travels in order to meet Isaac and to marry him. And it's it's portrayed as a heroic act of faith. Rachel here doesn't get the opportunity to do that. She doesn't seem to be asked uh, about her decisions and her wants. No, she soon becomes just an object of Jacob's desire and even more cruelly, a bargaining chip in the hands of her father Laban because that's what Laban does. He uses Rachel 
and Jacob's desire for Rachel in order to get Leah, the other sister, married, seems to be in Laban's interest, but also in order to secure more free labor from Jacob. Because that's what Laban does. He tricks uh, Jacob into marrying Leah and then says, oh, okay, you can have Rachel too, but you have to work for me for another seven years. We're not told whether Rachel wanted to be married to Jacob, but even if she did, she would not want this. Who would to have to share a marriage with someone else, with anyone else? That's not how marriage should be. And she's exploited in this way. And how cruel this is, especially at the hands of her father, Laban. A father is supposed to be one who protects, who empowers, who (laughs) works for your best interest and has that at heart. Laban is selfish. Laban exploits his daughters. And it's horrific. It's horrendous. And Rachel's a victim of it. And Leah, arguably, is even more a victim of this situation. She's exploited even more. We're not told very much about Leah. It says in there in verse 17, her eyes were, were weak, which is a very odd phrase. What we're getting there is the very literal translation of the original language because it's not quite clear what that phrase should mean or how we should interpret it. Different commentators give different suggestions as to what that is referring to. But even though the phrase in terms of the words is not quite clear what they should be, the meaning of it is very clear. Leah was something, but Rachel was beautiful. You get the contrast there. Leah is the one who's unfavoured, unwanted, undesired. And you might think, oh, well, Laban's trying to do her a favour by getting her married. But no, he's working to his own ends. And actually, he compounds this comparison. You see, Laban commits the deception and Jacob is a victim of the deception, but Leah is the biggest victim here. She suffers the most out of everything that happens here. She has to undergo this humiliating and degrading experience of having someone tricked into marrying her. See, a marriage, a wedding, it's supposed to be, especially for the bride, an opportunity for them to be celebrated, to be honoured, to be valued. And the absolute opposite is what is happening here for Leah's, what turns out to be Leah's wedding. She's, the very fact that she is not favoured, not celebrated, not desired, is really rubbed in her face here. In the pitch blackness of the wedding night, with undoubtedly at least semi-drunk Jacob, the deception occurs. And then we have this phrase, when it's discovered that Jacob accidentally has, from his point of view, has married Leah and consummated that marriage with her. He says, oh, well, complete the week with her. And again, such a brutal phrase there. And it means two things. Firstly, 
a wedding celebration in that context would have lasted a week. We would have commonly have weddings that would last an afternoon or the second half of a day. They would have weddings that would last a whole week. And so to, not to lose face, I'll keep this wedding celebration going, but then also uh, to have a week uh, of Jacob married to Leah would have given more opportunity for Leah to uh, conceive. But once that week is done, Leah is cast aside. Rachel is the preferred one. Rachel is the one that Jacob wanted to marry and gets to marry her after this week. And Leah is condemned, trapped into this marriage and condemned for the rest of her life to be the unfavoured one, the unloved one. She has no choice to do anything else. So what we have here is a very, a very tragic story. But it's also a very human story. And in many ways, it's a very contemporary story in the sense of it raises issues and describes behaviors that still as a society now, thousands and thousands years later, we as a society are still grappling with. Firstly, binary categories of beauty that are destructive. How many more dating TV programs are there going to be based on this premise? Who is the accepted ones? Who is the not accepted ones? Who is the beautiful ones? Who are not the beautiful ones? Who's going to be voted in? Who's going to be voted out? Who's going to be the winner? Who's going to be celebrated? Who's going to be cast aside? Modern dating apps follow this same premise. Do you want this person or not? No, I don't want that person. Want this person or not? No. Superficial judgments. Who is beautiful? Who's not beautiful? We are surrounded by this messaging again and again and again. Standards of beauty that people, men and women, feel they can't measure up to. We talk in that language. And even we can be complicit in that, not speak out against it as we should. It's destructive. We see it destroying lives here. And destroys many lives in our society as well. And secondly, we have, a, it raises the issue of comparison. And we live in a culture of comparison. I've said this before. Social media exacerbates this time and time again. We're forced to think of ourselves in comparison to others. We must resist this again and again and again. It's not healthy. It's not good for us to objectify one another. It's not how we were made to be. We must resist this. Because it is destructive. Rachel and Leah are forced into this marriage where the comparison is right there. They're forced into these positions of comparison. Who is loved? Who is not loved? And it's so sinful and so destructive. And thirdly, we have women being exploited by men's desire. What a big issue this is in our society again and again. And again, we must be alert to it. We mustn't imagine or imagine it's not a big deal or dismiss it. We see, even in this passage, the destructive influence that it has for people's lives, for generations, when women are just overcome and their, their wishes are not thought of because all that matters is a man's desire, what he wants. 
And it's destructive when women are not cherished, not valued, not believed. We're hitting those issues time and times again. We need to be alert to that and we need to call out the wrongness of it in the opportunities we have to do that. Where does God fit into this equation? Again, we might ask the question, it's in God's Bible. Does he condone this mistreatment of these women? Is he on the men's side? Let me say a few things on that. Firstly, we must remember, whoever we are, if we read this story and have a sense of injustice about it, we have that because we were designed to have that by God. Again, first pages of the Bible, God makes men and women in his image. So what they have inherent value, inherent equality. And that is inbuilt into us. And therefore, when people are mistreated, when people are not given the dignity and value that they deserve, we instinctively say that is wrong. That is because God has put that in us. You see, if you push God out of the equation, and many people in our society do, and you say, well, people, well, we're just, you know, evolved apes, survival of the fittest, that's why we're here. That just does not match with an idea of inherent value. It actually contradicts that quite radically. No, the Christian has more reason than ever, than anyone, to say the mistreatment of women is wrong. Because it's not just based on a passing phase. That is a popular thing to say right now. It's based on the fact that page one of the Bible, men and women created in the image of God. And we must believe that and we must say that as well. Helpfully for us, if we ask the question, how would God treat these women? The Bible is actually not silent on that. And we have a wonderful contrast later on. And I want to end with this. The Bible shows us how God would treat women in a situation like this because 1,700 years later in the New Testament of the Bible we have Jesus meeting a woman at a well. You know what that well is called? If you look it up, John 4. John 4 verse 6, Jacob's well. It's called Jacob's well. And Jesus meets this Samaritan woman And Jesus shouldn't really be talking to her. He's left alone and he strikes up a conversation in terms of the society's view that he, as a man, shouldn't be talking to this woman, especially not a Samaritan woman. But we see in the way that Jesus interacts with her the dignity and the value that he bestows on her, even just by striking up the conversation. He's sitting at this well, this woman comes along and he, asks, he engages her in conversation and he even asks her for a drink of water, something that shouldn't be done. But what Jesus is doing is he's demonstrating, even if society doesn't value you, even if others don't value, even if you've been mistreated, I value you. You see, Rachel lost all her dignity at the hands of men all her agency, her inherent sense of value, it's dismissed by Jacob and by Laban. Is God like that? Is Jesus like that? No, he's not. Jesus sees this woman at the well, not with the labels, beautiful, not beautiful, Samaritan, Jew. He doesn't, he's dismissing that. He speaks to her as a precious, 
person made in the image of God. He does not see like the world sees. He just sees her with inherent value because she is. She's made in the image of God. And in this conversation, I encourage you to look up at John 4. What we also see, Jesus moves on the conversation. He continues the conversation and moves it on. And then he says, you know, go and call your husband. And at first, we might think this is a cruel thing for Jesus to do because this woman, it was explained, is living with someone who's not her husband. Again, not the done thing to do. But also she's had five husbands. And it seems that Jesus is touching on a nerve here. Touching on the source of weakness, the source of shame. But what is Jesus doing here? He's raising it to show, I I know about this, but I'm still going to dignify you. I'm still going to talk to you. I'm still going to show that I know and I'm not condemning. I'm not pushing you away. I'm drawing you close. You see, Leah was the unfavoured one. And for this Samaritan woman, five husbands, well, might suggest that maybe we could imagine that one or two of them might have died, but that speaks of multiple divorces. This woman has been rejected again and again and again. Unfavoured one. And what does Jesus do? Does he condemn? Does he reject? No. And in fact, through Jesus' kindness towards her, it says that many people actually believed in Jesus. He is demonstrating just by simple words and phrases, the gospel, the good news, that the Savior has come. And many people believe in Jesus because of this interaction. What is he saying? He's saying, you may have been rejected by men, but I don't reject you. I want to bring you close. I don't want to push you away. You see, Jesus, he gives dignity to a Rachel. You see, Jesus, he prizes the unfavoured, restores Aaliyah. And that's because Jesus, he's the good husband. He's the life-giving one. He is a giver and not a taker. You see, Jacob, if you remember, what does Jacob mean? Jacob, when he was born, he grabs onto his brother's heel. Jacob, he's the snatcher. He's the grabber. He's the taker. And what is he doing in this situation? He takes, he desires Rachel and he has her whatever means necessary. Is Jesus like that? What's Jesus' desire? Jesus' desire is to not snatch but to give of himself, to love, to forgive, to restore dignity and value, to empower. That's what a good husband does. That's what the good husband does. And that's how Jesus is described in the gospel. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives do that as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that's the gospel that Jesus is the good husband the one who the God who is full of love that comes into his broken world full of darkness and instead of condemning 
He comes and he lays down his life to take upon sin upon himself. Out of, out of love for you and me, Jesus dies on the cross, lays down his life so that we can know his love, a love that restores, a love that restores our dignity and worth and value because God loves us. Other people might have rejected us. Other people might have not favoured us. But we look to the cross and see Jesus Christ, he loves me. He cares about me. I am his. I have a father who doesn't mistreat me, but that lays down his son's life for me. And that love undoes the hurt undoes the sin, undoes the pain, undoes the brokenness and shame of our lives. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you've come. And I pray for each one of us. Maybe many listening have resonated particularly with these themes. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, rush in with your great love for us that we might know your kindness in our life that restores and we might see ourselves the way that you see us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.